All right, guys, it is 9 o'clock this morning. <clears throat> We're about to begin our Bible class. I think it's appropriate, considering the circumstances, to begin with a word of thanksgiving. So if you'll join me, woo, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you'll, get, you'll get more of that. I have more to say. I'm going to save it for the sermon when we have a full house. But, all right, that's all I'll say about that. <clears throat> we are studying, as you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we are in the last month of this class. We began in September. No, in August we started it, uh, and then in September, and then now we have one last month here, October. And with the, uh, the, the way that it was laid out, I had it very particularly in mind. And as uh, Tolkien said, the tale grew in the telling. I, I found things I needed to find a place for, and I couldn't find a good place to work it in chronologically. So I stuck it off to the side, and I'm going to work it in this morning. What I mean by that is this. If you were with the class from the beginning, we started by looking at Jesus in Galilee, and we kept the focus exclusively on Christ, and we made in that one class, in 20 minutes, seven references Jesus makes throughout his ministry, not just in the Galilee region, but his ministry, seven references he makes to his death. There's a lot more. I said that in that class. There's a lot more than just seven, but I didn't want to dwell too much on any one particular one. I wanted to get seven and move on. And then from there, we went to uh, some Old Testament texts in Isaiah and then caught back up with the Lord in Gethsemane. And we made seven observations about his prayer, the let this cup pass prayer. And there's a lot more that could have been said because a lot more things happen in Gethsemane than just his prayer. But I knew in my mind as I was writing the text, I said, there's more, but I want to just put it aside. I want to just keep the focus on Christ. And so from Gethsemane, we went to Gabbatha. And we noticed seven wounds that the Lord endured, seven physical and psychological abuses that he took part in before he ever went to the cross. And there was more going on at Gabbatha than just Jesus and his trial and his abuse that happened. But I knew that, and I thought, I only have one class to spend on Gabbatha, so I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to just keep the focus on the Lord. And then from there, we went to Golgotha. And we noticed within a three-week stretch the seven statements the Lord makes uh, on Calvary's hill. His seven famous, I guess, final words, if you will. Though he has a lot more that he'll say all the way to the end of Revelation. But in terms of his first life, his final words, those seven statements that he made. But even as I prepared that material and planned to teach it and divided it up into three classes, I knew that there's, I'm just not going to have enough time to cover everything. And so I said, I'm just going to set it aside. Well, welcome to the Set It Aside class. What I want us to do in this class, if you'll permit me, is for us to just go back in time and just spend this one class and just consider Galilee, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha from a different perspective than what we considered in the class. Because as I say, I just wanted to keep the focus originally on Jesus and his journey to the cross. But as I say, a lot was going on around. So let's look at things from a different perspective and then end once again, with Jesus dying on the cross, and then next week, I know I promised it last week, but hang with me one more week. Next week, we'll put him in the grave, and we'll watch what happens next. So let's open our Bibles, with that being said, to John chapter 12. And let's consider first uh, the Galilee portion of this being the, the references Jesus makes to his death. Let's consider one that has a lot of material that it, we, we didn't get to cover uh, in that 20-minute class way back when. So go to John chapter 12 and look at verse 23. And what you're going to see, hopefully, as we go through this text, just a few verses, is the mindset of Jesus, not just, like we noticed when we looked at Galilee last time, we just made the observation, it's on his mind. He's always thinking about it. Yes, true. 
But here I want us to notice, what is he thinking about it? Not that he's thinking it, but what is he thinking? What's his perspective on the whole crucifixion idea? So look at John 12, start in verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now if you study the book of John, you know it's divided into two halves. The first uh, 11 chapters basically is the ministry of Jesus in miniature form where John highlights seven miracles that he did. He says, look at his seven miracles to prove he's the Son of God. And then the last half of John from chapters 12 through the end is look at the abuse he suffered as the Son of God. Look at what he did with his being the Son of God. He proves who he is and tells you why. That's the book of John in two sentences. So we're at the beginning of that now. We're at the beginning where the first half of the book of John takes three years to cover. The second half takes a week to cover. He spends that much time on just this one period of time. And here at the beginning of that, Jesus kind of kicks it off and he says, now the hour is come, the proverbial hour, the period of time of my suffering is upon us. And the Son of Man should be, the King James says, glorified. A word which means honored, esteemed, lifted up, but not in a physical sense. This is not a lift him up on the cross reference. This is a resurrection reference. My master is already thinking ahead. He's already looking to, through the suffering to the other side. And he says, now the hour has come for his death, when the Son of Man after which will rise and eventually ascend to be glorified, sitting on his throne as a king over a kingdom. That whole period of time is fast approaching. Look at verse 24 of John 12. Now, he backs up in his mind. Verily I say to you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That last little phrase, it brings forth much fruit, is parallel in the idea of the Son of Man must be glorified. He's telling you what it means. He's telling you why he's thinking about that. Now I get to be glorified. Well, Jesus, aren't you going to suffer? Yes. Aren't you going to be brutalized? Yes. Aren't you going to die? Yes. But I'm, that's a small little sliver of the pie. The bigger picture for me, Jesus says, is I get to be glorified. Well, elaborate on that, Jesus. Why are you focusing on that and not the hardship that's to come in the front of that? He says, well, I'll tell you, because it's like a corn of wheat. Unless a corn of wheat breaks off its stalk and falls to the ground and dies, falls into the ground, incidentally, and dies, then it will always abide alone on the stalk. But if it dies, it gets to produce greater and greater number than just its one solitary stalk. Now, it, some Bibles, if you have like those Bibles that have like the little um, descriptive phrase at the beginning, at the top of the header, it might say like the parable of the sower or the crucifixion of Jesus. So give the reader an idea of what they're looking at. Some Bibles have here the parable of the corn of wheat. This is not a parable. It's just an analogy. It's purely just Jesus trying to make sense of, in his own mind and his disciples, why he's going through this. Why, are, why did you leave heaven, Jesus? Why did you choose to take on this mortal existence and to endure all of the hardships that come with it, to take all the abuse that we were going to hurl at you? Why did you choose to do that? And his answer is in this verse. Because a corn of wheat, if it doesn't die and fall into the earth, then it will forever be alone. But if it dies, then look at the great amount that can sprout as a result. That is Jesus' perspective of his own death. Now think about it like this. We always think about Jesus' death and his resurrection from our own perspective. He died for me. It's almost, it's, it's almost selfish of us, but he allows that because it's a selfless, on his part, sacrifice. He wants us to think about your own salvation. But yeah, he died for me. Okay, that's my perspective. What's his perspective? What's in it for him? I know what's in it for me. What's in it for him? 
What's in it for him is he wants to live with me. He actually cared enough about me that he was willing to come down here, be abused, and die so that I could live with him. I was on his mind. Now, when I think about the death of Christ, I'm thinking about me. He died for me. When Jesus thought about the death of Christ, he thought about me. He was thinking about me. Nobody's thinking about Jesus here because it's a selfless sacrifice. He's giving up himself. He's thinking about it like this. I could stay in heaven forever and mankind can stay fallen. They can stay mired in sin and they can be destroyed. And that would be justice and that would be vengeance and they would be gone forever. But I would remain alone. I'd sure I'd have the whole Godhead and I'd have the angelic host. But I made man, Jesus is thinking. I made them and they've fallen away. And I didn't make them for nothing. I didn't make them just to watch them fall away. I want to be with them. I made them and I put them in a garden and I walked with them and then I had to kick them out of that garden and I want to walk with them again. So I am willing to pay the ultimate price to walk with them again. I am willing to go and do all that I'm about to endure so that I can live with them. Otherwise, I'll just abide alone. That's why it's important to read this text not as a statement of defeat, but as ultimate victory. Because it specifically says, in the original language, it says it in the English and the King James. I don't know what your translation says. But it says, if it falls into the ground. In other words, if it goes into, not onto the ground. You know, I'm up and I fall onto the ground. I've fallen over. I've been defeated. But this is fall into the ground. Unless I die and be buried, I can't be glorified and enjoy life with everyone else. That's what's on his mind, the whole picture of it. I don't know about you, but if I had the cross in front of me, it'd be hard to see around it and see glory on the other side. I'd be thinking just about my death. But my master was thinking about the perspective. He was thinking about the big picture, which leads him into verse 25. He wants me to think about it too. John 12, 25, he that loves his life shall lose it. He that hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If all you care about is just surviving and having as comfortable a life as possible, if all you care about is making it so that this time on earth, whether it's 15 years, 51 years, 85 years, 100 years, however long you have on this life, if all you think about is, I just want to make sure I am as happy as I can be right now, as content as I can be right now, as comfortable as I can be, as free from pain as I can be, okay, you might pull it off and then you die because it's going to happen one way or the other. If all you care about is yourself, then eventually you're going to lose your life. But if you yield over yourself, if you, the King James says hate, but all the word means is if you regard your life as lesser than something else, in this case, Christ, and what he's asking for you, then you'll find it to life eternal. That was his perspective, except he had it about me. He thought, I regard my life less than Matthew's, less than yours. And so he was willing to die. And he says, now you go, do likewise. Now, that is the Galilee section. Let's go to Gethsemane. Let's look at Gethsemane from an alternate perspective. And let's, the segue is this. The purpose of that little statement of Jesus is to get you to see the big picture, to see that the pleasures of this life are temporary, so focus on the eternal. Very famously, a person who doesn't do that is Judas Iscariot. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, 43 through 50. Mark 14, 43 through 50. Or you can go to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew. Sorry. Matthew, let's do his account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have it. But look at Mark, uh, Matthew 26, 47 through 56. 
If there's one characteristic that, well, there's many characteristics that define Judas. In terms of his eternal soul and the, the perspective, it was that he cared more about the short term and he missed the big picture. Because he was willing to throw away the long term for a short term game and it gained, and it was so short term, he didn't even get to spend the 30 pieces of silver. He, just, he tosses them back because his guilt was so bad. The whole purpose of repentance is when you actually repent, if you genuinely repent, you'll say to yourself, if I had a time machine, I would go back in time and not do that again. That's why it doesn't work when you say, well, I'll just sin and then say I'm sorry. Well, you may, but your sorry is only going to count if you could have not done it in the first place. Otherwise, you're just trying to get out of jail free card, and that's not how it works with God. Your repentance must be a genuine uh, wish that you could have done it differently. That's why you're going to do it differently going forward. Judas had half of that, but he didn't go all the way. And we'll see. Look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. While Ju uh, Jesus spoke, this is right after the Gethsemane prayer. Lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves and chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why are you come? Then they came, and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus to him, Put your sword in its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Think that I, am not, think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. And how then shall the Scripture be fulfilled, that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitude, Are you come out against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you in the temple, and let you laid no hold on me. And yet you laid no hold on me. 56, last verse. But all this was done that it might be fulfilled of the prophets. Uh, then the disciples forsook him and fled. All of the disciples forsook him. Two are going to turn back, but in the moment, they all forsook him and fled. We'll come back to their betrayal in a second. Let's talk about Judas. <clears throat> The fall of Judas is a tragedy. It is not supposed to be a thing you read and get mad about, except to say you get mad in the sense of, I can't believe you did this. Surely you should have known better. But you don't have to stand in the shoes of Jesus and feel rage that this person betrayed you because the man himself doesn't act like that. You don't get to get angry that Judas had the audacity to go up to him and say, Master, hail, Master when he clearly wasn't his master anymore, and kiss him, a, a gesture of, of um, welcome and greeting amongst friends and, and companions, when he clearly was not a friend anymore. I know Jesus will say that, throw it back at him, but that's not Judas' mind anymore. He has betrayed his Lord. And so every word that he says and every action that he undertakes at the beginning part of this is just actions of lies. So I can understand, I can understand why a person might want to get angry, but the Lord himself doesn't get angry. The Lord himself shows no vindictive spirit toward Judas. And you would think if anybody should receive a, a tongue lashing from the Lord, if anybody should be scolded by the Lord, it would be Judas. But it's not. When this whole thing happens, what Jesus has are accusations against their attitude. Accusations against their character. And against what they're doing in general. It's not personal, like, how dare you do that to me? Because Jesus is a selfless person, not just on the cross, but in his whole life. Our time frame, if you're, if you're just catching up, we're, we're in, Jesus just finished his arrest, or just finished his prayer, pardon me, in Gethsemane. 
and Judas is approaching. And I had to skip over it, but you know the account. He goes to the priests and he says, what will you give me if I betray him? And they bargained and haggled over the price, 30 pieces of silver. Which if you're familiar with Zechariah, is a prophecy there, or also just the fact that that's the lowest amount that you could pay for a servant, or it was the lowest penalty that you would pay if someone had done you wrong. It's basically, it's minimum wage. It's the cheapest chump change. And that's how much he was willing to sell out his Lord for. Now that tells you that Judas was so desperate and that he was so obviously desperate that the chief priests, who were so obviously desperate to kill him, saw his desperation was even more than theirs, and they were willing to lowball him, and he took it. They were willing to say, 30 pieces of silver. We'll start you at the bidding at zero, at one dollar, sold. That's how desperate he was to get a quick buck. Anyway, they, they haggle over it, they work it out, and he leads this motley crew to come arrest him, uh, of Jews. The Romans aren't involved yet. So it's the temple guard, the chief priest, people who could identify him and make the arrest. Arrested at night, which as we said a few weeks ago is illegal under the law, but still arrested. Now, I look at this and I see, and maybe it's just reading into it. It's just, it's like a weird perspective. You have Judas, who was once a follower of Jesus, breaks away, betrays his Lord, and now himself is leading a band of followers. Like he's his own twisted version of a rabbi, leading a school of, of devotees, come not to teach good news, but to deliver bad news. You're under arrest, and we're going to kill you at the end of it. And then as he says to them before he goes, he says, whomever I kiss, that's the guy, hold him fast. As if Jesus might try to resist, as if that's in the character of Jesus to fight back, when he's showed no inclination to that at all in three and a half years. Hold him fast. Now maybe all he's thinking is, there have been times in the past when you guys almost stoned him, when you almost got him, and he just slipped through your fingers. So make sure you grab him. Let me tell you something. If he wanted you to take him then, you could have taken him then. He didn't. That's why he slipped through your fingers. So if he wants you to take him now, you're going to take him now. And if he doesn't, he's going to slip through your fingers again. You're not going to manhandle Jesus, not because he's really strong, but because he's really God. So it should have been a red flag when they, when they were able to take him and he put up no resistance at all. They should have started to realize maybe there's something bigger going on here, but they're so caught up in the moment, they're so full of bloodlust, they're so excited they finally got him that they don't stop to consider the perspective. But then a bunch of stuff starts happening. It's just pandemonium ensues. And even though we only covered Matthew's account, you can read Mark, Luke, and even John touches on it. What happens next is you have all these people coming with Judas, and they all have weapons like Jesus is going to fight. They all have their weapons. They're coming to fight him. Jesus has his 11 behind him, and if you remember, <clears throat> right after the John 17 prayer and they're about to go out, they say, well, we need some swords. And Jesus says, you have two, two is enough. Two swords. You think, well, two swords, that's a lot, right? No, you have two swords among 11, 12 counting Jesus. Two among 12, that's a small number. Here come this group, I don't know how many, how many they had. Even Let's say it was a dozen. Let's say they matched the total. They all had weapons. You have 12 armed people versus two armed people. And if their perspective is right, Jesus is going to fight back. If their perspective of the Jews is right, the disciples are going to fight for him. And sure enough, for a moment there, that looks like what's going to happen because Peter, as you know, takes one of those two swords and draws it and takes a swing at the first guy he can find. And I seriously doubt his aim was true, that he was aiming for Malchus's ear. But nevertheless, he took it. Now think about this. And I, I taught this before. I'm not going to reteach the whole thing. But if you read John 18... And you read John's account of this. It says, as they approached Jesus, they asked, 
Um, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I'm right here. And right after he says, I am he, I'm right here, it's, uh, John says that they all fell over onto the ground. And it's one, read it, John 18, I think it's verse 36. It's one of those things we blow right by. Well, what is going on there? If you take John's account and you overlay it with Matthew's account, and you take those two events and you put them on top of each other and you get the full big picture, the time frame is this. <clears throat> they come to arrest Jesus. They're all armed. They say, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, you found him. And then whoosh, something happens and they all fall down. And I've heard people say they all fell down because they were shocked Jesus was there. That makes no sense. They wouldn't be shocked Jesus was there. Judas led them there. And they said, here he is. And when I go kiss him, you'll know which one of the 12 it is. Nobody was shocked Jesus was there. Well, maybe they were shocked that he identified himself. Why is that shocking? These are real normal human beings. They're doing real normal human being things. Evil in this case as it is. Something happens which causes them all to fall down. Now line the time frames up on top of each other. Here's the timeline. They all fall down. Peter draws a sword, cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus heals Malchus's ear and then tells everybody, put your swords away. That's the time frame. If you take out one of those moments, you have a bloodbath. If you take out everybody falling over, then here's what would have happened. I am he. You found Jesus. They draw their weapons to arrest him. Peter draws his weapons to, weapon to defend, and they go attacking. He cuts off Malchus's ear and says, I'm standing up, and I'm the guy next to Malchus. Let's call myself Fred. I'm going to draw my weapon, and I'm going to shiv Peter right in the side because he just chopped off this guy's ear, and I'm assuming I'm next. And so someone would have attacked Peter, and someone would have attacked him, and you would have had, this, you would have had the innocent Jesus standing around this mass of murder and death and betrayal and killing. And that's not what he wanted. The only way this is going to go down is if everybody is able to freeze, if, it's, is if nobody is able to attack when they're ready to attack. Peter's ready to attack. The soldiers are ready to attack. So Jesus diffuses the situation. How does he do it? He knocks everybody to the ground. John 18, 36. Is it verse 36 if anybody's there? I should really look up these verses before I teach the class. Sir? 18, verse 6. Read it for me, Tommy. Yeah, perfect, exactly. Time frame. If they hadn't fallen to the ground, bloodbath. Because they did, Jesus had time to pick up the man's literal ear and put it back on his head like it was nothing. I can't even put a broken Dorito chip back together. And he put this man's ear back on his face, immediately making it so that they have no reason to retaliate. Because now it's no harm, no foul. I can't be mad that he cut off my ear because my ear's not cut off anymore. So he puts the guy's ear back on his face and he says immediately, put all your swords away. I did not come here to fight. Peter, put your sword back. Shame on all of you people for coming with weapons as though I was going to come and fight. He diffuses the situation immediately when it should have been a bloodbath. And then he makes his famous statement. He says, don't you realize, don't all of you people realize that I could call right now 12 legions of angels. Now I know we sing the song, 10,000 angels. A legion is 10,000. He can call 120,000. And it's not even that. Because it says in Matthew, I could call more than 12 legions of angels. I don't even know how many he's got. But I imagine since he's the creator, he could keep churning them out no matter what. He only needed one to kill 185,000 uh, Assyrian soldiers in 1 Kings and in Isaiah. If he only needs one angel to kill 185,000, he's going up against, let's say, a dozen. He doesn't need 12 legions. That's overkill. But if he wanted to, he could certainly do it, and he could destroy the whole world. And here's how the song goes. 
he could destroy them all and set him free. But that's not the context. I like the song. I'll sing the song, but that's not the context. He is not saying, don't you know if I didn't want to die, I could call 12 legions of angels? No, the context is put your sword away. I don't need you to fight for me, Peter. I can call 12 legions of angels to fight for me. I need you, Peter, to die for me. That's the context. He didn't call me to fight for him. He didn't call me to fight a holy war. He didn't call me to fight a crusade. He didn't call me to put people to the sword at their throat and say, confess Jesus or die. He called me to have the sword put in my throat and be told, denounce Jesus or die. And then confess Jesus and die. That's what he called for me. I could call 10,000 uh, 10, plus 10,000 angels. I could fight this battle and it'd be over before they even blinked. No, I came to die. Put your sword away. I don't need to be fought for. But Peter didn't get that message. So let's read Mark chapter 14. And let's go to an alternate perspective of Gabbatha. Mark 14, 66 to start with. We ended the Matthew text by saying um, they all forsook him and fled. So when it was obvious that Jesus was going to be taken and when it was obvious that they weren't going to fight for him, because for three years they've heard, they're going to take me, they're going to arrest me, they're going to kill me. And I wonder, maybe, maybe in that three years, because they didn't understand it, maybe what they thought he was doing was warning them. Maybe they thought he was saying, listen, guys, in three years, they're going to attack me. And maybe they thought he meant, you guys are going to have to step up and defend me. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Because when the moment came, that's exactly what they were prepared to do. And when Jesus said, put your swords away, I'm going peacefully, what do they do in response? They don't go peacefully. They're his followers. They're just as guilty. They run away. They all forsake him and flee. Oh, shame on you, Judas. You betrayed your master. He did. He did. And so did Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew, James, Simon, Thaddeus. They all forsook him and fled. Look at Mark 14, starting in verse 66. And, wait, hang on. Um, no, starting in verse 51. 1451. Verse 50, you'll notice, they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young man laid hold on him. And the young men laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. What? 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 It's Mark, I think the writer. He's putting himself in the text. I think he was there. I think that's him talking about himself. 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and elders and scribes. And Peter followed him afar off. He forsook him and fled. But, you know, as Peter is one to do, he turned around and started following again. Incidentally, so did John. You can read that in John's account. And Peter followed afar off, verse 54, even to the palace of the high priest, and sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus and put him to death and found none. To put him to death and found none. And many bear false witness against Jesus when their witness agreed not together. Keep that in mind. While this is going on with Peter, who we're about to follow, warming his hands by the fire, at that moment are the people accusing Jesus, and while they're accusing him, they're bearing false witness against him. They're having to drum up people to say Jesus is a criminal. They're getting people to lie, to deny Jesus. Peter's about to do it for free. Keep going. 57. There arose certain and bore false witness against him, saying, Oh, we heard him say he'd destroy the temple, made with his hands in three days, and build another, made without hands. 59. But neither did their uh, witnesses agree together. 
As the, and the high priest stood up in the middle and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What, what do you say about these witnesses against you? But he held his peace. If only Peter had done that. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Held his peace. Again, the high priest asked him and said, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest ripped his clothes and said, Well, we don't need any more witnesses. And you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and attack him and say to him, prophesy. And they struck him with their hands. This is the Gabbatha scene we covered a few weeks ago. At the same time, meanwhile, verse 56, as Peter was beneath the palace, there came one of the maids of the high priest. And she saw Peter warming himself. And she looked on him and she said, weren't you also with Jesus of Nazareth? Now, I don't know how much she knows. She's just a, a maiden. She's just a secretary. She's not there. She's not taking notes at the trial. She doesn't know all that they're accusing Jesus of. All she knows is Jesus was arrested. There were 12 with him. They all ran away. And she sees this one and she thinks, weren't you with him too? That's it. That's all she said. But he denied, 68, saying, I know not. Neither understand what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. What? And then the rooster crew. And the maid saw him, a maid saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, I think this is one of them. And he overhears this. She says to someone else with her, I think he was one of them too. Not necessarily to say, guards, guards, come arrest, but just observationally, I think this guy was one of them as well. Verse 70, and he denied it again. And a little after, they stood by and said to Peter, surely you are one of them because you talk like a Galilean. And Jesus' disciples predominantly came from Galilee. Jesus' ministry began in Galilee. You have that affectation. You sound like a Yankee. What are you doing here in Arkansas? You must be one of them because Jesus was a Yankee. I'm sorry to tell all of us, but that's the perspective. Jesus was a Yankee, and he talks like a northerner, and you talk like a northerner. Well, there you go. You must be one of his disciples too. And the preachers, and I'm guilty of it too, will take that phrase, your speech betrays you, and will use it to mean he talks like a Christian, and so he curses because it's not how a Christian talks. And that's a wonderful little point that is not at all in the context. But I like making that point, and I've said it myself, because it's absolutely true. Peter thinks, I need to start talking in a way that doesn't make me sound like a follower of Jesus. But he doesn't throw his voice. He doesn't suddenly start talking with a twang, or whatever the, the southern dialect in, in Judea is. I like to think they all talk like southerners in Judea. So but he doesn't do that. What does he do? He begins to curse and to swear. To swear in this case is to take an oath, which is just as bad as saying swear words. He already covered that when he said he cursed. He curses and he swears. And I want to think what it means, if you'll permit my French, is he says, no, damn you, I'm not one of those people. That's to curse. It's not just to say a naughty word. They didn't even have naughty words in that culture. But it's to put a curse on someone. It's to condemn someone, to damn someone. Damn you, I don't know that man. Curse and to swear. Make the oath, I don't know that person. So he is going as far as he can to the other side to convince these people he's not a follower of Jesus. Thus, the application is still sound. If you want people to think you're not a follower of Jesus, by all means, curse and swear. Unless you're in Bible classes, I just did. All right? He began to curse and swear, saying, I know not the man. And the second time, the rooster crew. And Peter called to mind the words which Jesus said to him. This is verse 72. Before the rooster crows twice, you shall deny me. Three times. And he went out thereon and wept. And here's where we make our parallel observations between Peter 
and Judas. Because Peter is three times as guilty as Judas. Judas went to the chief priests and betrayed him. Peter betrayed him. And then he betrayed him again. And then he betrayed him again. Three times as guilty. Both felt sorry about it. Judas felt regret. Judas felt remorse, perhaps even, to give the benefit of the doubt. And he goes to the chief priests and he says, this never should have been done. Here's your money back. Well, what do they think? This is not like returning a movie at Target. They're not going to take the 30 pieces and give him Jesus. That's not how this is going to go. Judas is not thinking clearly. He doesn't have a plan. He's just acting on impulse, which has always been his problem. Incidentally, it's always been Peter's problem. Judas just wants. And so he's not thinking big picture. He's not thinking perspective. He's just thinking, I just want some money, and I want to get rid of Jesus. I'm tired of this life that he's calling us to. So I want to take some money. What will you give me? He's just acting on impulse. If that doesn't define Peter in the ministry of Jesus, nothing does. He's impulsive. He speaks without thinking. He acts without, do, uh, without considering. And here, he denies, denies, denies without stopping to remember until it's too late. My master predicted this. He doesn't have to go down that road, but he acts impulsively. I need to take care of myself. I need to preserve myself. It's like, I got to think about me now. And he forgot that Jesus says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. It's not until later that he realizes it. And like Judas, he remembers it bitterly. And he goes out and he weeps. The differences draw, the similarities end here. The differences are stark now. Because Judas went out and hung himself. Peter went out and said, I need to get this right. I'm going to find my Lord on the resurrection morning. I'm going to have breakfast with my Lord, and I'm going to apologize in his own way three times. That's John 21. That's another time. So one made a bad choice. One made the right choice. But other than that, other than the end, the whole of their journey with Jesus was remarkably similar. But it is about the end. Peter started to see perspective, and he says, I'm going to change the way I think about this, and I'm going to do it differently, whereas Judas could only see in front of him, and what he saw was a guilt so tremendous, he, all he could do was end it. I think it's interesting when you think about how Peter describes Judas's death in Acts 1, he doesn't, con I, don't, I don't want to say he doesn't condemn him, he doesn't spend 10 minutes blasting him, is what I mean. He doesn't attack him, he doesn't uh, say he's dead and good riddance, that's not what he does, he just says he went to his own place, he made his choice. We're moving on. Peter's betrayal was horrible. It was selfish. It was shameful. And it is repeated constantly by brethren. You don't have to say the words, I deny him. I renounce him. I know not the man. All you need is the opportunity for someone to wonder, is this a Christian? For you to know they're wondering and then leave them no doubt that you're not. Because you don't want to deal with the consequences. That's the betrayal of Peter. It is just running away from responsibility. It is a betrayal that happens constantly. So that's Gabbatha. What time we got? All right. <clears throat> Let's go to the alternate take of Golgotha, which really isn't an alternate take. I just wanted to end the class here. You have Galilee to put these three things together as we get to the fourth one. You had Galilee. You had Jesus on his journey to the cross. And then we focused on that one text at the beginning of this class where he put it in perspective of why he's doing this. Not just that it's on his mind, but why. And he says, because if I don't die, I'll abide alone. If I'm not buried, 
I'll live alone. If I'm not resurrected and glorified and ascended to sit as a king over a kingdom, I'll have no kingdom, I'll have no followers, and all these people that I made, that I created with my powerful hand, will burn in hell forever. And I don't want that. I'm willing to die so that that doesn't have to happen. That's Galilee. And then in Gethsemane, we see the personal side of that. It's not just I'm going to go be killed by these random strangers. I'm going to have to face the, the denial of my friend. I'm going to have to watch as all my other friends betray me. Remember, it's, it was at the Last Supper that Judas had already left. He was there for the supper, and then he leaves, and then Jesus talks a little bit more. So Judas was already gone when they all went out. He went out to betray him. They finished the meal. They had the prayer. Then they go to Gethsemane, and he prays again. So he's already left them. He already knew he had left them because he already said at the supper, whoever I dip my hands in the sop with, the same it is who will betray me. It was already there. He was already thinking about it. He went to Gethsemane with 11, his core 11, his faithful 11, and he had to watch them forsake him too in that moment. And if you don't think that hurts Jesus, you got to remember the end of John chapter 6 where he had thousands of followers, thousands of people whom he had just finished feeding, 5,000 plus, and then he starts talking about, now you must eat my body and blood and drink my blood. Now you must sacrifice yourself for me. Now you must live a hard life if you want me to just do more than fill your physical belly. And they heard that, and thousands upon thousands just turned and forsook and fled. And he turns to his disciples and he says, are you also going to go away? Now don't picture a smile on his face when he says it. My master was a human being. He had perfect perspective. He had big picture mentality, but he was still a person. You could still break his heart. He watched thousands of people take his food and then leave. And then he says sadly to his 12, are you also going to go away? And it was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I just imagine his heart lifted. His spirits were raised and a smile comes over his face. Now, two years later, his number is down to just 12. And one leaves, and then they all leave. And he doesn't have anyone even to turn to to say, will you also go away? Because they've all gone away. Now that's his mental state. That's his emotional state when they take him and they abuse him. And they mock him. And they say, I thought you were the son of God. Won't God deliver you? Now maybe that gives a little insight into why a man like that would sit on the cross and say, why have you forsaken me? Because everybody else had. Literally, everybody else had. So now he's in Golgotha. Now his hands and feet are nailed down. Now railroad spikes have been driven through his flesh, his blood, and his nerves. And the cross falls into its hole with a thud, and now begins hours of agony, hours of pain, hours of waiting and wondering, when will this be over? When will this be past so that I can get to what I want to get to, get through this to glorification? I didn't even mention it. It was in John 12 where he lifts up a prayer and God responds and he says, I have glorified you and I will glorify you again way, way, way in the back of his mind is that promise. He just has to get through this. When can this pain finally be over? When can it finally end? When can I finally die so I can get to the reward? Too many people, they see death and it's, to them it's a wall. It's an ending. It's not a door. It's a wall. 
and they say, I've got to make things as nice as possible till I reach that end. Jesus understood, and Jesus set the template for us to understand death is not the end. It's something you get through to go to the other side. And while on the cross, as we talked about for the past three weeks, he's thinking about his enemies. He's thinking about his mother. He's thinking about the people dying next to him. He's thinking about the God in heaven. He's thinking about his own humanity. And finally, the moment where there's nothing left to do, there's nothing left to say, there's nothing left to endure. So he just utters three little words. It is finished. And then Jesus, for the first time in this whole class, going all the way back to Galilee, when he was just talking about his death, and you could see anxiously it was on his mind. He says anxiously, he says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this cause I came to this hour. Now is my soul troubled. The same person who says that in John 12, two chapters later, will tell his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. He's a human being. So all that anxiety is all pressing and all against him and all with him until now, finally at the end, he can utter seven little words from a heart of contentment and from a heart of peace. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. He said that little prayer. He died. And Luke 23, 46 says he gave up the ghost. To give up the ghost is an old expression. It goes back to the 400s or so B.C., it means just what it sounds like. You have within you a spirit of life. God breathed into man a spirit of life. Pneuma in the Greek. Pneuma means spirit. It's also translated as ghost, but I don't like the translation ghost. I don't like Holy Ghost because it implies Casper, the friendly Holy Ghost. That's not what the idea is. It's just a non-physical thing. You know, there's something about you that cannot be um, visualized. Cannot, it's, it's not empirical, cannot, not, not tangible. You have it within you. It's real, it exists, but it's not at all in any way physical. It's your spirit of life. And when you give up that spirit of life, you, you hand it over. You, you yield it over. Sometimes you yield it whether you want to or not. When you're old and you die, you're hit by a bus. Jesus, in this case, gives it over. Hands it over. Yields it over. He gives up the ghost. And incidentally, as we said before, it's only six hours after his crucifixion began that he gives up the ghost. And I'll talk about this more next week. But this, this should have taken days. Days, not hours. He yielded himself to die. I want to read you John 10, 17, and 18. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life in order to take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. He's making it very clear that the Jews are responsible, the Romans are guilty, but I'm doing the work. I am laying down my life. I am going to take it up again. He suffered like he was supposed to. He was crucified like he was supposed to. He spoke his final words like he was supposed to, like he wanted to. And when he was ready, he allowed himself to die. Fulfilling the role of high priest offering a sacrifice. The priest cuts the lamb's throat when he's ready. Jesus cut his throat proverbially when he was ready. In loving kindness, Jesus came. My soul in mercy to reclaim. And from the depths of sin and shame, by grace he lifted me. His brow was pierced with many a thorn. His hands by cruel nails were torn. But from my guilt and grief forlorn, in love he lifted me. From sinking sands he lifted me. With tender hand he lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light. Oh, praise his name. He lifted me. How did you do that, Jesus? 
I was so down in a pit. How did you lift me out of that pit? He says, I lifted myself. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I was way down in a valley, way deep in a hole, so deep and so dominant that I could not get out of it. I could not dig my way out of it. I could not climb my way out of it. No one is offering a rope long enough to pull me out of it. I was completely and totally stuck, left to die in that pit. And Jesus did not go down. Jesus went up onto a cross. And so high and lifted up, I was able to see him from that pit. And just like a magnet, he pulled me up to him. To do that, he had to die and be buried, which we'll talk about next week. We have considered our master through this whole class talking about all of this. It's built up to us. It's, it's often called the climax of human history. Everything leading up to this moment, Jesus on the cross. Well, now the moment is over. But if you've read your Bible, here's my Bible. The crucifixion is about here. There's a lot of book left. So if you've never read the book, you must be wondering, boy, the epilogue is really going to be something. Yeah, because it's not the end. It's not even the end in Revelation. Because the end of Revelation is, and you're going to keep on winning. That's, that's the end of Revelation. But this whole story reaches its climax. It reaches its peak when he dies on the cross. Well, how do you top that? You just wait. Because he's going to be dead and he's going to be buried. But hold on to your horses because in three days he's going to rise again. And he's going to make a spectacle of it too. That's all I have for you now. Don't get sad. He's in the ground now, but just give him a couple of days. He'll bounce back. All right, that's all I have for you. Thank you guys very much.